0: In our remarkably divided 21st century America, both sides long for a lost unity. Both sides are looking for a reassurance, and they look to the founding documents, the intent of the men that wrote them, to shore up and argue that their side is the true America, in what seems to have increasingly become a frightening warlike division in our country. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say the past shows my side is right? This was the intent for the future America of the men who started it. But what if what we have come to believe as a standard definitional story of America and what our guest calls the standard story does not actually provide legitimacy for one side? What if it does not back up our belief in the consistent intent of our founding documents that demands justice and equal treatment for all? What if, the more we understand it, the more it appears that the Declaration actually serves the side of the Confederacy and not the Union that Lincoln preserved? What if, since that 19th century war for who we are as a country going forward, everything changed? A new version of America was born with reconstruction and that is not what our founders intended but actually is the America most of us think we are and most of us think we want to be well in his book the nation that never was our guest author Kermit Roosevelt III demonstrates why it's important to reconsider the meaning and power of what's been the standard story what if our idea of the founders America and its values is inaccurate and that we are not heirs to the founder's vision, but we can be heirs to reconstruction and its vision, its and Lincoln's aspiration and vision for equality and justice and eventually unity. Well, I I met our guest at my daughter's graduation from uh, UPenn Law School, and he argues that we modern Americans are not heirs To the founders but of the people who overthrew and destroyed that racist intentionally unequal political order pushing open a door to a new understanding of ourselves and ultimately to a better america interesting stuff while the trumpists conjure an image of a 1776 250th birthday party loaded with divisive cultural baggage what the Times' Michelle Cottle noted was to be a unifying national birthday party an intoxicating blend of nostalgia watch out for nostalgia people spectacle and performative patriotism with lots of sharp edges the reality of what Trump would like to do, assuming he actually won, is a reaction to the New York Times 1619 project which Roosevelt references positively throughout the book. Now, it's no surprise to listeners that I am of the Democratic left, and some have asked, how can I feel patriotic in light of the pervasive ugliness in America's history? Professor Roosevelt's new book provides a solid foundation, a deeply researched and articulated answer to the problems that we fessed up to at the pivotal moment of Reconstruction. The full title of the book is The Nation That Never Was Reconstructing, America's story. Americans love to tell comforting stories about our foundational documents, uh, writes Roosevelt, a uh, law professor and a great-great-grandson of Theodore Roosevelt. We so want to believe that the Declaration of Independence, for for instance, enshrines the notion that all men are created equal. But our guest, Professor Roosevelt, demonstrates how that's not true. Kermit Roosevelt, thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: Thanks very much for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Kermit Roosevelt is an award-winning author whose latest book, Allegiance, has been called an instant classic. His previous novel, In the Shadow of the Law, was the Christian Science Monitor Best Book of the Year, the winner of the Philadelphia Athenaeum Literary Award, the New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice Selection, and a National Campus Bestseller. Roosevelt is professor of constitutional law at the University of Pennsylvania, where my daughter just graduated from. He has published in the Virginia, Michigan, and Columbia Law Reviews, among others, and his articles have been cited twice by the Supreme Court and numerous times by state and lower federal courts. Well, again, thanks so much for being with us today, so much to discuss, and so much actual optimism that we can get by relearning and getting a better sense of who we really can be anyway, and what the aspirations of Lincoln were. An old Unitarian minister friend of mine a long time ago said, Bert, there's only two things that motivate people in politics, fear and reassurance. We may talk about fear, but Professor Roosevelt, what your book focuses on is reassurance. What you call the standard story is indeed about reassurance. What, what is the standard story and what's problematic about it? Tell us about the standard story and how it, maybe it's a fundamentally false story.
1: Well, so the standard story should be familiar to everyone once I sort of tell you what it is because it's what you hear in political rhetoric. It's sort of what you learn in high school civics. And the basic idea is... American history starts in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence, the ideal that all men are created equal, and then we fight a war for that principle, which is the Revolutionary War. We make that principle into law with the Constitution that's written in 1787, and then progressively over American history, we more fully realize that ideal. So American history is a story of progress. It's a success story. It's a story of continuity. We're the same people that we've always been. And basically, our goal is to live up to the ideals of the founders and to finish the project that was started in 1776, sort of the thing that we've been working on since then.
0: Well, it, interesting. The, it, it's not exactly uh, as most people believe it is. And as you say, the when a national story no longer works, it creates a kind of identity crisis. And uh, it does seem that... Donald Trump really tapped into that by the simple phrase, and people are often led by simplistic uh, uh, answers, uh, make America great again. I-, I wonder how this make America great again, this MAGA, uh, it's kind of plays into the crisis. And as you asked, by venerating the founding, they could use the exalted past as a fulcrum for the degraded pres- uh, present. And it seems like we're, perhaps we're seeing that now. Your thoughts?
1: Well, yeah. So this is something that you see on both sides. Um, You know, people are always saying we've fallen short of the ideals of the past. We must live up to those ideals. But they sort of differ about what those ideals are. Uh And the interesting thing about Make America Great Again is no one's very specific about when America was great and what made it great and really for whom it was great. Yes. But really what's behind that, I think, is the idea that there was a time in American history, and you could look at the 1950s, or the 1890s maybe, or you know, the 1780s, where there was a pretty stable hierarchy, and the people who were in power felt secure in their privilege. And then, you know, equality movements come along and make them feel insecure, and yeah. they feel a sense of threat, because when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Um, and I think that's what on the Trump side, people are looking back towards.
0: Well, wow, that is a really interesting and, and helpful uh, perspective. And uh, y- you talk about insiders and outsiders—that that was the intent uh, uh, all along. That that they're you know that, that perhaps uh, may, uh, you know equality, all men are created equal, only applied to the insiders. How do, how does that compare with that other concept, "We the People"?
1: Well, so this is, I think one of the really big questions about American history or American identity is who counts as we the people? Uh And is there a line that keeps some people out? And the important thing to understand about this is before the civil war, according to the Supreme court, the U S constitution had a racial line in it and black people could never be U S citizens. They could never be among the people. And what changed that was the 14th amendment. So one of the ways of describing what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say American history is not a story of continuity. We're not the same nation we were in 1776. There's a really big break with the Civil War. And one way of understanding that break is we go from an exclusive society where there's a racial line around the American people to an inclusive society where everyone who's born here is a citizen. And of course, that's the consequence of the Civil War and Reconstruction.
0: And I, I, my guess is that most people, who, you know, who pay attention and who vote, don't really know that that was the case. That it was uh, there to protect the the uh, the stable hierarchy in place and keep it in place, and that that uh, is people misunderstand that, and and it's actually playing itself out because. As you say, uh, people who had been in a hierarchy, if suddenly the outsiders uh, are, are deemed as equal, that's a threat to them. And, they, and they, they fight against that. And that's really been playing itself out in the last uh, number of years, it seems to me. And one of the things about the standard story is, is that you say it encourages complacency and that that is deeply harmful and that we've needed to shake it up a number of times, that the standard story is the biggest obstacle to equality and justice, and our attachment to it is harmful. Please say more. Well, yeah, so what I mean
1: by that is the standard story, it's reassuring, you know, we were saying that before, because it tells us our ideals have always been there and we've always been working towards them and we're always getting better. And that does encourage a sort of complacency, I think, because it suggests that progress is inevitable and all you have to do is wait. And the no. people who are out there protesting, you can tell them, you know, I agree with your goals, but you're a little too extreme. You're not being civil. You're being disruptive. And if you just wait, America will work itself pure because, of course, our ideals can exist alongside deeply racist exclusionary practices. Look, right there they were in 1776 when every state allowed slavery. So the fact that there's injustice isn't a problem for the American story. It's just Mm. something that maybe will work itself out over time. Um, And the lesson of history really is that doesn't happen. Progress comes through conflict and you need conflict to disrupt a hierarchy. So this is why the standard story paralyzes people who honestly do share the goals of equality movements, but believe that America is sort of fundamentally based on equality. It's fundamentally good. And if you just leave things alone, they'll get better, but they don't.
0: And so many people really, really dislike, and it seems to me even more so lately, uh, conflict and, and upset. They want things to be smooth and predictable. And you reminded me, when I was in elementary school, somehow I got to believe that, that progress was a straight line, that it just it just happened. <laughs> it just happened. And But but that's interesting. And it's important to note, I, I think, that, that you say that uh, it, it does come through conflict and that the 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 dissenters, you talk about the dissenters uh, contributing uh, quite a bit to uh, to who we are. Talk about who some of those uh, dissenters have been and and how you know what motivates them and and, and what keeps uh, offers a promise to us for the future that we want to, that at least some of us want to see.
1: Well, so the role of dissenters from the standard story, in American history is really interesting i think because before the civil war you've got a bunch of different people who are challenging the idea that the declaration of independence and the constitution are somehow aspirationally dedicated towards equality for all and some of those people are the pro slavery southerners like mm-hmm. john c calhoun but some of those people are abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison, or the early Frederick Douglass. And what I'm saying is, historically, I think all of those people are right. Hmm. I think they're all correct that when the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal, it's giving you a sort of Lockean thought experiment about political philosophy. It's not saying the government should treat all people equally. Um, And... The question is, what do you make of that? So, you know, one thing you can do with the flawed system you have is you can try to read it in its best light and work with it going forwards, and that gives you something like a story of continuity. Or you can try to break the system and make something better, throw it off and replace it, which is what William Lloyd Garrison wanted to do. William Lloyd Garrison wanted the free states to secede. He said, no union with slavery. And what happened was... We actually did have a rupture and a break of the existing system, and that was the Civil War and Reconstruction. And we built a new system in its place that is obviously explicitly dedicated to inclusion, that's birthright citizenship, and equality, that's the Equal Protection Clause and the 15th Amendment. But we're trying to pretend that we still live under our original system, that our original system had these values, that in fact it didn't. Um, and that's what causes us to sort of be misled about who the heroes and villains of our story are.
0: Yeah, we we'd rather believe the nice, easy thing, and 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 believe uh, what we what we pretend to be. We want to have that, and uh, it's so much more comforting and reassuring for those who may have just tuned in. Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Uh, And our guest today is uh, Professor Kermit Roosevelt III, who's got a book out titled uh, The Nation That Never Was Reconstructing America's Story. And it does shake things up quite a bit. And I'm certainly interested in in history. And uh, I don't know who originated this statement, but the more I learned... Uh, about history is that uh, we never learn from history. We don't. We, we never learn from history. But this is important stuff, the divisions that there have been, the people who thought they were right and who still do about the intent of the original founders. And in terms of the right wing claiming the mantle of the Declaration of Independence, as both sides seem to do, and say, well, we just need to get back to that. We just you know, have to go forward without that intended. You say the real heirs to the signers may be the Confederates who declared the independence to protect the rights they thought they would do under the government they had created. Wow. So how the, the real heirs to the original intent, or at least some of it, of the Declaration, perhaps may be the Confederates? Say more about that, please. <laughs> yeah, well, so this is one of the things that, I guess it's
1: surprising to a lot of people, but having thought about it for years, this now strikes me as just sort of obviously correct. And it kind of did at the time too, in that when the Southern states announced their reasons for seceding, they invoked the Declaration of Independence. And if you think about it, they're doing pretty much the same thing. So what happens in 1776, the American colonists get together and they say, look, what's the purpose of government it's to protect people's rights. And this government was formed to protect our rights and it's not doing that. And so we have a right to make a new government and we're going to decide we are one people, right? We're the Americans. We're not the British. We're a new people. We're going to create a new government. We're going to live the way we want and we're going to govern ourselves. Great, Um, nice idea. But where does that principle take you in 1861? Well, the Southern states are doing exactly the same thing. Right? Yes. They're saying, we got together with the other colonies, we formed a government, it was supposed to protect our rights, we were very concerned right, when we formed the Constitution about protection of slavery, and there are provisions in the Constitution, there are concessions that the slave states won at the Constitutional Convention that were supposed to protect slavery, but the free states really aren't honoring those provisions in the way that the southern states want them to. And an anti-slavery person has just been elected president. Mm. And the Republican Party wants to end slavery. The national government is now opposed to this institution on which our way of life is based. And, you know, we don't like this anymore. So we're going to define ourselves as a new people. We're the Confederate States of America. We're going to create a new government. And we're going to set up, you know, the system under which we want to live. It's exactly the same thing. So the principle that licenses revolution in 1776 also licenses secession in 1861.
0: It does seem to be the case, and and you know you can hear echoes of uh, a, a tyrannical government, one that doesn't represent us, uh, that that it's not serving us. It's serving. It, they're dominating us and and controlling us. We have a right to our independence. This this a lot of uh, it makes a lot of sense, and uh, of course. Militarily, they lost the war. Did they win in the long run? Well, kind of, but we'll let that go for a different time. And the right today insists that racism is not not systemic, that slavery was an aberration. You say, quite to the contrary, that slavery is not the original sin. It is the country's very origin out of slavery and the anti black racism it required grew nearly everything that has truly made America exceptional. Wow, there's a lot there. And, and what is, I want to ask about our foreign policy based on the idea of American exceptionalism, but I wonder if you could talk to that first about how it's not an aberration, it's deep in our country's origin. Well, it's, it's not an aberration, certainly.
1: Um, And So I think that that language is me quoting the 1619 Project, but the 1619 Project says sort of slavery is the essence of America, and people take that to mean, and therefore America is bad. Mm. And what I would say is slavery is the essence of America because our America is born in a fight against slavery, right? That's where our ideals come from. So, the Declaration of Independence, the phrase all men are created equal, was that considered a startling new proposition and a deep moral principle in 1776? No, it wasn't, right? You can look back at how the Declaration was received in 1776. People didn't really care about the preamble, they didn't think it was important. Hmm. Who starts reading all men are created equal as this? broad principle about how the government has to treat everyone, right, even outsiders, it's abolitionists. So the understanding of the declaration that we have now comes from abolitionists. And then how does that principle prevail? How does it enter our constitution? It's the Civil War uh, and Reconstruction, which is an attempt to initially preserve the Union, right? That's how the Civil War starts, but it ends up as a war against slavery And the Reconstruction Amendments are designed to ban slavery, of course, which the 14th Amendment does, and then eradicate its badges and incidents, and then create an equal society. So it's the reaction to slavery, it's the struggle against slavery that makes America with the Constitution that we have today
0: boy and we've certainly been witnessing and many of us been part of that struggle uh, for a very, very long time, uh, you know, the, the the civil rights and uh, you know just moving away from you know separate and unequal that has been enshrined that was enshrined in the law for for so long. Uh, we're still dragging huh, the country along and and you know again, it's not progress that just happens suddenly by you know complacency. We have to make it happen. And We have been struggling with that for a long time, and your book goes into that uh, quite a bit. Some of the major players that there have been, from you know William Lloyd Garrison, Martin Luther King, uh, just uh, trying to move, and, and it's it's been hard because. You know, as you say, you know, uh, the founding values have a lot in common with uh, uh, Confederate values. And, well, a a few times now, the 14th Amendment has been brought up, and it's been in the news of late relative to the debt ceiling issue. Uh, I don't, I mean, people have known, you know, a few of the amendments, but the 14th Amendment is not particularly well known, I think. You focus in your book about on that amendment quite a bit. You call it the 14th Amendment, a new birth of freedom. Why? How is the protection it affords, the 14th Amendment, how is the protection it affords the heart of our constitutional identity today? Talk about that for a while.
1: Yeah, so I'm so glad you asked that. Um, this is another way in which we just sort of misunderstand our history and our Constitution. No. So you ask people, you know, what are your important constitutional rights? What are the rights the Constitution protects? They'll say things probably like freedom of speech in the First Amendment or freedom of religion or the right to remain silent, maybe from the Fifth Amendment or the right to counsel in the Sixth Amendment. Um, and then you can say, OK, you know, and, uh, do you know any Supreme Court decisions that protect those rights, that articulate those rights? And they might say, I don't know, like New York Times v. Sullivan is a famous First Amendment case. Or Miranda Mm -hmm. against Arizona, right? It's a famous Fifth Amendment case. But here's the thing. Those are not Bill of Rights cases. And there are actually very few Bill of Rights decisions by the Supreme Court. And the Bill of Rights actually doesn't do very much for you. The reason for that is the Bill of Rights only restrains the federal government. So this is part of the founding vision where the states are the good guys. The federal government is the dangerous threat to liberty. Uh-huh. We've got these civil Rights provisions, but they only restrain the federal government. The states can do what they want. Then it turns out the states are the ones who are taking away people's rights. And again, this is highly racialized because a lot of it happens in the context of slavery and its aftermath. But the states are taking away people's rights, and it's the 14th Amendment that protects people from them. So your free speech rights, if the state tries to criticize you, if Florida says this book is banned, mm. right, which they said about my book and they can do that in public schools, yeah. but not private schools. So Florida bans a book, what stops it from doing that? It's the 14th Amendment, it's not the 1st Amendment.
0: Wow, and, and uh, that that's quite an honor to have your book banned in Florida. Bauseltov, that's no, great. Good for you. <laughs> Oh my goodness! I'm I'm jealous. It's like uh, Nixon's enemies list. It was quite an honor to make Nixon's enemies list uh, way back then. But uh, uh, and the idea of the rights of man. You know, we you talk about the First Amendment and how you know people don't think that you're right. The First Amendment protects our freedoms, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, from the federal government, but it doesn't protect it from, from other governments. And, and you cite something that I, don't, I didn't know much about, actually, uh, a, a precedent for uh, stating uh, the, the, the rights we have. In 1789, you point out that France adopted the Declaration of the Rights of Man. I hadn't really heard of that. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say. But you say that document is everything the Declaration of Independence, the American Declaration of Independence, is not. And that the Declaration has actually been a powerful force against both liberty and equality. Boy, that'll surprise a lot of people. And that segregation and denying blacks the right to vote are perfectly consistent with the Declaration of Independence. Whoa. Tell us about that, please.
1: Well, so again, we really misunderstand the Declaration of Independence, I think. And I'm talking about the Declaration as it was understood in 1776, Uh because it does mean something different now. We've Uh sort of reinterpreted it. Uh But the thing to understand is it's a Declaration of Independence. It's not a Declaration of Rights. It's not about rights that people have in society. It's not about how the government must treat them. It's about the circumstances under which it's okay for people to reject government authority. That's what the colonists are doing.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So if you want to write something about how people should be treated once a society is set up, then you would write a declaration of rights, which the colonies had. Lots of colonies had those. Um, and France did. And France says people are created equal and remain equal. So when the declaration says all men are created equal, it's talking about this hypothetical state of nature. And it's doing that to figure out what the responsibilities of government are. Uh, But it doesn't say anything about whether, you know, in the United States of America, this new nation that's being created, it doesn't say anything about who will have rights or what those rights will be. If you're going to do that, you need something like, the Constitution, which does go on to do this, but as I said, it only gives people rights against the federal governments, or you need, you know, the state constitutions. And Uh the states had their own constitutions, but they tended to limit the set of rights holders. So they would talk about free people entering into a social contract and having certain rights. Mm. Uh, All of which is to say the Declaration of Independence is really about independence on a national level it's not about the rights that americans have against the american government
0: yeah people i think largely uh, you know don't know that mean, we, we project onto the declaration of independence what we want to project but as you say it's a declaration of independence it's a secession from uh the uh mother country of uh england and uh, you say Losing the Declaration may be the best way to find ourselves. Well, that's sort of uh, you know uh, provocative a little bit there. What do you mean?
1: Well, so basically my big project, my big goal, is to reorient our origin story around the Civil War and Reconstruction rather than the Revolution and the founding. Um, and sometimes i say you know we have to give up on the founding sometimes i say well it's a matter of emphasis you know we understand the founding was important we should look at reconstruction too but i do think we would be better off if instead of the declaration of independence which you know if you read all the way through the complaints against king george it talks about merciless savages that's how it refers to native americans it talks about king george inciting domestic rebellions, which is about slavery. It's about encouraging slaves to rebel. Mm. So the declaration is not that great. Um, Is there something that could replace it? Yeah, the Gettysburg Address. The Gettysburg Address is shorter. It's about democracy. It's about equality. It's about freedom for everyone. Um, It's better. And then, you know, you can do the same thing with the Revolution and the Civil War. The Revolution is a war for independence Bought by states in every one of which slavery is legal
0: mm-hmm. against
1: a nation, Britain, in which slavery is not legal. Right? There's no slavery in England at the time of the revolution. Um, what happens during the war? Well, one side starts freeing people that the other side has enslaved and the enslavers complain very bitterly about it. But it's the British freeing enslaved people, freeing them from the Americans. Um, Fast forward to the civil war. It's exactly the opposite, right? There you've got the nation that has partially banned slavery, which is the United States because you've got a lot of free states in the North Uh fighting a war against rebel States where every state is legal. And during that war, one side starts freeing people. The other side is enslaved. That's the emancipation proclamation and the enslavers complain very bitterly about it. And obviously when I tell you, right, there's a war and slavery is an issue, and one side is freeing people that the other side enslaves, we want to be on the side of freedom. Mm-hmm. We don't want to say we support the people who are enslaving others. And we can do that if we say our America is born in the Civil War.
0: Uh-huh. We can't do it
1: if we say our America is born in the Revolution.
0: Interesting. And as you, as you talk, and I, I think about the various... Rebellions and, and dissents throughout our history, we do tend to—well, we had romanticized uh, something back in the 1770s in Boston, the Sons of Liberty. Uh, they were kind of a rough bunch, actually. <laughs> and and they—you uh, they, know, people, people got hurt there. And I think about the, the far right today, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers— and their anger that they don't get to be, you know, the top dogs anymore, I guess, because of their skin color. Uh, what, what about what about that? And I, I just, uh, you know, as as you say, the the revolutionaries, the American revolutionaries, uh, the people who fought for independence, anyway, were focused on supposed injustices inflicted on them. And, of course, they were rather blind to the injustices they inflicted on others, like the people of January 6th, 2021, I think. Uh, it, I, it, what's your? Is it logical to connect some of that with uh, January 6th, 2021, with the idea of, uh, you know, we have this repressive government, we have to uh, t- take our... our our rights back uh, and and fight against this uh, dominating tyrannical government.
1: Yeah, so this is one of the ways in which the standard story is harmful, I think, Uh because it tells us that standing up against the tyrannical national government, Mm -hmm. and you've got these mostly white paramilitary organizations doing it, right? That's the Sons of Liberty and the Minutemen. Mm -hmm. That's American patriotism. So, like, you decide if the government is infringing on your rights, and you decide if that's sufficiently serious to justify rebellion, and then, even if it's technically treason, which, of course, declaring independence was under British law, that's okay, because you're standing up for your rights, and that's the American thing to do. Um, If you carry that message forward again, uh, one, it gets you secession in 1861, and then two, it gets you people like The Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, these militia groups who are saying the national government is behaving tyrannically and we're going to defend our rights and that's American patriotism. And they've got all of this Revolutionary War iconography for a reason. There's a reason that the far right associates itself with 1776. There's a reason that Mm -hmm. the Tea Party called itself the Tea Party. Mm -hmm. Um, Because The ideology of the founding, the revolutionary ideology, provides a lot of support to people who are resisting government attempts to promote equality.
0: Oh, man. It's been a long struggle, and it goes on and on and on. But again, as you say, struggle and conflict is is difficult as it is. It's how we move forward. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're talking about history, which we like to do on the show. Our guest today is uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania law professor uh, Kermit Roosevelt III, whose book is titled The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story. And we did talk about uh, the Gettysburg Address, which is a very brief, remarkably brief uh, speech. And uh, uh, one of the things I learned as a recovering politician myself, it almost doesn't matter what you say. As long as you keep it short, people like it. And that was short. Uh, So people may want to believe the Gettysburg Address was uh, the fulfillment of the founding ideals. You say it was actually kind of their repudiation of the founding ideals whoa talk about that if you would please well so there's
1: two points there one is one that i mentioned already which is in the civil war the southern states are declaring their independence and lincoln is rejecting that lincoln is saying you cannot be independent you cannot leave you cannot create a new government without your consent Right? And the Declaration says governments get their authority from the consent of the governed. Lincoln is saying, without your consent, I will force you to stay in the Union, and then I will remake your society mm. against your will, which is what Reconstruction does. This mm. is the new birth of freedom that the Gettysburg Address is promising. Southern societies are going to change without the consent of the people who form those societies. So...
0: And they've never really, I, I wonder if they, sorry to interrupt, but I think I wonder if they've ever really accepted that, the Southern states. Well, so I think a
1: lot of them didn't, yeah. and they didn't really accept the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment was not ratified because the Southern states consented. It was ratified because Congress wiped out 10 of the former Confederate states. It said no governments exist. In those states. Uh It eradicated the legislatures that had just ratified the 13th Amendment. And then it made new states because it said the formerly enslaved are going to participate in the governments of these new states. The former Confederates are not. It made new states with new political communities and new structures of government. And those new states are the ones that ratified the 14th Amendment. The states that existed in 1776 did not ratify.
0: Right. these are different states. Right, and, and it, it it certainly uh, seems to be true that uh, a lot of the uh, people uh, rejected the uh, Reconstruction, and they they uh, created something in reaction to that. You know, uh, called Redemption, which got really ugly. And uh, boy, so it, it's not exactly a smooth line of progress, as anybody who really actually reads history can can figure out. And again, I, I think about you know, some of the original intent and the original uh, sentiment of some of the, the founders, the people who were you know, part of the Sons of Liberty and the, the Minutemen and, and people of action like that. Uh, as you say, <laughs> fast forward uh, to 2021, 20, uh, actually, 2020 and 2021, when Americans are, were driven to frenzy by requests that they wear masks to uh, avoid exposing others to COVID-19. Whoa. They, they were acting out the founding script. People were, uh, you know, I think everybody who's listening knows that uh, people went kind of uh, really angry about being requested to wear a mask to avoid exposing others. It's, I don't care about other people. I just, it, you know, I don't have it myself. How about that? How were they acting out some of the founding script, the, the opponents to wearing masks?
1: Well, so if you think about the Declaration of Independence, that's really the idea there. It's like, my rights are important. You're infringing on my rights, and I have this reaction, which is maybe a bit of a hysterical overreaction. So if you look at the situation of the British colonists in 1776, by the standards of most of the world, they're not doing too badly. right? They're actually not being treated that badly. Mm-hmm. But right. they think their rights are being infringed. They're really upset about that. And they don't care about what they're doing to other people, which is why the colonists can sort of simultaneously say King George is terrible because he's trying to make us into slaves. This is sort of their whole theory of their argument. Um, Ultimately, King George is trying to make us into slaves, and that's a terrible thing. But what's another terrible thing King George is doing? He's encouraging the people that we had enslaved to rebel. So there's obviously a sort of deep hypocrisy there. Um, it's actually not a philosophical inconsistency, mm. I say, because the philosophy of the Declaration is that only the insiders count. So it's okay to enslave outsiders, but it's not okay for King George to mistreat the colonists because they are insiders.
0: <laughs> and, and it's not okay for the government to say, we, you know, we should all wear a mess because that infringes on my liberty. How dare you infringe on my liberty? And obviously, the title of this show is uh, uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. And I will add that we picked that title before Trump got elected in 2016. Uh, democracy. How, how important is democracy to the adherence of the standard story? My sense is the people on the far right, the, the uh, January 6th people, uh, people like that, and Trump— I don't I, I, How do they feel about democracy? How important is actual democracy to the adherence of the standard story? Um, I would say it is
1: not important. And the interesting thing about that is democracy is not important to the Declaration of Independence either. Uh-huh. So if you look at the Declaration of Independence, and, you know, this is another thing that surprises people. But if you look at the Declaration of Independence, what makes a government legitimate? It's formed by the consent of the governed, Mm -hmm. and it protects the natural rights of the people who formed it. And a monarchy can do that. A hereditary monarchy can do that as long as there's some sort of hypothetical consent in the past and it's protecting the rights of the people who formed it. Um, And that's why the Declaration of Independence has to go on and list all of these charges against King George and say he's behaving tyrannically so it's not enough to say he's a king, therefore he's illegitimate. They have to say he's a tyrant, uh,
0: uh-huh. therefore
1: he's illegitimate. And it's the Gettysburg Address that introduces the idea of democracy wow. that says government of the people, by the people, right? By the people. That's democracy for the people.
0: Hmm. I don't think many people really thought about the Gettysburg Address introducing uh, democracy. That That is uh, fascinating. And... More as we discuss this more and more, there's I think it's it's pretty clear that justice, equality, democracy, they have not been the highest priorities. Unity is more of a tradition. Unity for the insiders, and of course, black people are outsiders, and outsiders are dangerous. Uh, reminds me of build the wall. Mm-hmm. Racial solidarity among whites. Uh, helps overcome economic divisions. And it's always been curious why, you know, lower-income white people uh, ally themselves so strongly with white economic elites uh, and that uh, people turn against the government programs that help them because, as you point out, they don't want to share them with others. Uh, So the sought-after continuity with uh, some of these founding principles uh, is an exclusive unity. What do you mean by that? Tell us more about that.
1: Well, so if you look at moments in American history when America comes together, we say America comes together in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence, but that is obviously an exclusive unity because it doesn't, say anything about slavery, except that it complains that King George is inciting slave rebellions. And America comes together sort of again in 1876 with the Compromise of 1876, which resolves the disputed presidential election and allows America to move forward. Yes. Um, but it does that by giving up on Reconstruction, by allowing the Southern Democrats to take power again. And 1980, I think, is another similar moment where Reagan wins this massive electoral victory, but there's a lot of racial polarization in the results. So Reagan uh, wins like like 10% of the black vote. Um, And his rhetoric is about undeserving people getting benefits from the government, and that's highly racialized. And then his remedy and this is what you were referring to, is we're going to cut those benefits. Um, And I think that the symbolism is sort of the point there, because if black people are getting benefits from the government, then they're insiders. And if they're getting the same benefits that white people get, then they're equals. And so the hierarchy, the racial hierarchy, depends on resisting that message.
0: Uh, So perhaps poor whites can feel like, well, actually... They're not so down. They're part of the racial hierarchy. After all, it's, it's, once again, reassurance that they're part of the hierarchy. Oof, interesting stuff. There's so much to learn from history. And, and you say that, uh, that black military service uh, is more or less responsible for the creation of modern America. We talk about blacks being... You know, having equal rights and the reconstruction, <clears throat> uh, uh, you know, allowing black people to vote and to take office and actually putting them in positions of uh, legitimate government power. What about black military service? Why is that so uh, pivotal in creating uh, the, what we are today, the modern America?
1: Yeah. So black military service in the civil war, I have come to believe is like the most crucial piece of American history. So the civil war has started, right? And we're fighting. And Lincoln has always been against slavery and the Republican party is hoping for abolition. And by the time you get to the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, it's pretty clear if the union wins, slavery will end, right? So it gets us, you could say the 13th amendment. Um, But the question remains, what will be the place of the formerly enslaved people in this new American nation? Mm. Will they have a place? And Lincoln for much of his life was interested in colonization. So the idea is we free the people that we've enslaved and then we send them away
0: somewhere else.
1: Mm -hmm. So they're still outsiders, Mm -hmm. right? They're not enslaved within the United States anymore, but they're not part of the American people. And the 13th amendment is perfectly consistent with that because it doesn't say, that black people will be part of the American community. It doesn't say they will be citizens. Then the final Emancipation Proclamation is different from the preliminary one in a very important way, which is it says that black people will be welcomed and received into the armed services of the United States.
0: Ah.
1: And black people take that invitation and black military service leads to black citizenship. So military service has always been traditionally a path to citizenship. And people understood that during the Civil War. And Frederick Douglass talked about it. He was encouraging black people to enlist because he said, once you have the musket in your hand and the eagle on your shoulder, no one can deny that you have earned the right to citizenship. So it's because of black military service that we get black citizenship. And then what does that mean? It means you have to totally restructure the Southern states because they were very committed to excluding black people from citizenship. And you have to have the federal government come in and protect their rights, which is what the 14th amendment does. And that's why we have all the rights that we do against the states and not just the federal government. Right. And that's why we have cases like Gideon B. Wainwright and Miranda against Arizona um, and all of our 14th amendment decisions that we mistakenly think of mm-hmm. as bill of rights decisions because that's not founding liberty that's reconstruction liberty
0: reconstruction liberty that's something that's what we're talking about here today and and uh, it, it, it seems like that's what yeah, but those of us who are uh, progressives and not uh, for uh, far right wing racists want is uh, is uh, equality and uh, it does seem that uh, uh, according uh, to what you write in uh, your book, uh, The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story, uh, that uh, uh, justice takes precedence in Reconstruction over unity of the white race, for example. And uh, so that's, that's, that's an interesting switch, really, the, the switch from uh, unifying uh, the white race which, frankly, had been the case in you know in the uh, 18th century, uh, the the idea of justice. So uh, I wonder, and I got to ask now. This is something as we go forward, you know, and there's still a lot of challenges. Heck, a lot of challenges. Reparations. How important do you think reparations are to the goal of justice? How crucial is it that Black Americans who have been specifically excluded from wealth-building programs like through real estate, etc., cetera, uh, must now be deliberately included. What about reparations? How important is that to the goal of justice? Well, I, I, so I think that's very important.
1: I think that equality is very important, economic equality. I think that decreasing the racial wealth gap is very important. I prefer not to use the term reparations, I think. Okay. Um, because people feel that, well, white people, white people feel that as an accusation. And they think that it's saying that they are bad people who have done something wrong, and therefore they should pay pay reparations to the people that they injured. And of course, it's difficult to identify wrongdoers and trace blame over generations. Um, And I think all you need to say is something that's much simpler, which is we have a massive racial wealth gap in this country. And it's been produced in part by slavery and the legacy of slavery, in part by discrimination, and in part up until pretty recently by Mm -hmm. government transfers of wealth that have been deliberately designed to exclude black people. Mm -hmm. And all we need to do now is look at government expenditures and try to tilt it a little bit in the other direction and think about government expenditures that will reduce rather than increase the racial wealth gap. Um, and it really seems like, I mean, when you frame it that way, it seems to me like a pretty modest request.
0: Because mm. there is that, that clear uh, wealth gap, and we've, we've not done a lot along those lines. Uh, and an uh, interesting quote from Langston Hughes that, uh, we need, as you say, we need a better national story. Than the standard story, that it should be, as we've said a few times, you know, based on uh, on reconstruction and not uh, the Declaration of Independence. Langston Hughes said, uh, was was hopeful, I guess, the land that has never that never has been yet, the land that has never been yet. Uh, and again, Lincoln was, and one of the reasons, you know, I. Quite frankly, as a lefty, I feel patriotic is because it is aspirational. It's what Lincoln talked about and our hopes for the future that we're not there yet, the land <clears throat> that has that never has been yet. Uh, and uh, uh, perhaps we could uh, just uh, close out with this. You say dislodging the standard story is not a threat to American unity or to faith in our country. Instead, it offers a dramatic improvement of both. Talk about that, please. So I
1: do think of America as sort of fundamentally aspirational.
0: Yes. The conventional way
1: of telling that story is something like there was a moment of perfection. And maybe it was 1776 when everything was perfect and that's the America we want. And then there's some kind of fall somehow. And we want to get back to the great America of 1776. And the problem with that is you look at the America of 1776 and it's really not that great because obviously every state recognizes slavery. There's lots of inequality. So what I'm trying to say is we should think of this American ideal of equality as something that we work towards. Absolutely. Just like Lincoln said, but we shouldn't locate that moment in the past We shouldn't say Uh 1776 is what we're trying to get back to. We're not trying to make America great again.
0: Mm -hmm. We're
1: trying to just make America great. Um, We're trying to be the nation that never was.
0: And I I remember how... (laughs) hopeful I was when Obama was elected, I thought it might actually strike a blow against racism. Boy, was I wrong. Uh, that uh, the people felt like uh, that uh, he wanted to, to, to change America. Uh, you know, hope and change. And, boy, that caused a major reaction to that. Uh, but uh, we can... Th- there's a lot of aspiration there uh, in this. and what, The values that, as you say very clearly were embraced by uh, President Lincoln in the uh, uh, Gettysburg Address. Reconstruction, it was tough. You know, the redemption that followed Reconstruction was really ugly. A lot of people died, and the American presidents that followed Lincoln, yeah, were pretty tough on on black Americans and uh, kind of reasserted power to the white uh, slaveholders. But uh, we can be better. We can be better. The book is called "The Nation That Never Was: Reconstructing America's Story." Our, <clears throat> our guest has been uh, uh, Kermit Roosevelt, professor of law at University of Pennsylvania Law School, and I, I really appreciate that. And uh, there is uh, there's reason to still be patriotic. I, I, I think that uh, you know when when people on the right say when we teach actual history that. We, it's because we hate America. That is so not true.
1: No, it's not. It's because we love America. It's because we want America to be better. Yes.
0: Thank you so much for being with us today and Keeping Democracy Alive. And boy, we have a lot of work to do. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll marry our fortunes together I've got some real estate here in my bag Counting the cries on the new chairs We the turn back, they've all come to the fall of air All come to the fall If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and, of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.